Well, hello, all you beautiful chicks and dudes of all sorts. This is Suave Rob Suarez, the bitchin' double X daredevil star of Suave Rob's amazing ass-saving association, here with another ass-saving tip, totally free from me to you, to help you save your ass so you can live to sit another day. Now, back in the day when dudes were dudes, this one dude, Benchmark Bob, buddy of mine, he had this little accident. He tried frying up an egg when he was totally hammered. So he washed a pan, then didn't dry it, then put a shitload of butter in it, then turned on the heat. Well, when you do that, chicks and dudes, the water makes the oil go splatso all over your own personal face. And good old Benchmark got his bench marked, if you know what I mean. Like, when he took his apron away from his face, it looked less like a face and more like someone had stepped on a pepperoni pizza. I don't like to think about it. But that goes to show you, you know? Always dry your pans before you put oil in them, man. Especially if you're frying an egg. Want to know where I learned all this gonzo shit? I got it all done up pretty for you in Suave Rob's Double X Daring Do, the first book of Suave Rob's Awesome Adventures by J. Daniel Sawyer. Come share the awesomeness with me, my brothers, because you never know. The ass you save may be your own. Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, and I am your guide in this raucous journey of coping with the creative life. Fueled by your questions, we explore the trials and travails of productivity, discipline, art, and finances in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1066. Today we hear from Kane, who asks... On episode 1063 of The Everyday Novelist, you stated the following. If you lead with analysis at any layer beyond the practical, you're asking for years and years of spinning your wheels. It will not work. I feel strongly that I'm in this zone right now. I'm spinning my wheels. If the above is not the exact issue, then it's a large portion of what I'm going through. Can you please go deeper into this point? What exactly is happening? In a general sense, since you don't live in my head, how am I contributing to it? What do I do to stop it? All right. This was in an episode we were talking about too much education getting in the way of your storytelling. Too much studying story instead of doing story. Here's what goes on. It is the nature of intelligence to form abstractions, to form models, heuristics, and other ways of taking reality out of reality and putting it into a mental space where you have more control over it. This is really useful for things like hypothesis formation, for studying the results of something that you have um, experienced, for working out your personal issues, though it, it can get in the way there too. But where it goes wrong is when you divorce it from feedback loops, it spins towards an attractor state because there's nothing to keep it in check. I go into this at some length in my forthcoming book, Reclaiming Your Mind and Autodidact's Bible. I've got several chapters on it. The paradigmatic example of this kind of thing is the medieval school called scholasticism. The scholastics were rationalists, and a rationalist is not exactly what you think of when you think of the term rationalist these days. Today, when you think of the term rationalist, what you're talking about are people who are 
uh, what are called high decouplers. They're people who are willing to look at and think about things that are taboo or dangerous simply to explore the idea and play through and see if there, if the taboo around them is actually reasonable or if there's something in there that can be uh, salvaged or just to play with the thing. High decoupler means that you are decoupling your emotions, especially your reactive emotions. Your moral judgment. That's a good way to say it. You're decoupling your moral judgment from the reasoning process because the moral judgment can derange the reasoning process. That's not what rationalism really is. What rationalism really is, classically, starting at least in ancient Greece and kind of really going all the way back to the Indus Valley and the very earliest records we have of philosophical disputations in India, in the Hindu tradition. Rationalism is the art of argument as divorced from experience which is not exactly the same thing as argument as divorced from judgment or prejudice. Today's rationalists try to do argument as divorced from prejudice. They will sometimes slip into argument as divorced from experience. But classical rationalism, especially as embodied in the scholastic method, is each area of disputation in, in the idea space, whether you're talking about morality or theology or epistemology, which is the study of how we know things, and what's a valid reason to believe something. All, and ethics, all of the major areas of metaphysics, which is literally any area of human inquiry that is not subject to scientific testing is what metaphysics is. And that would include aesthetics, everything else. The scholastics lived in the area of metaphysics, and they brought physics into their purview. They argued about science. They did thought experiments. They argued about cosmology and its, the relationship between the physical world and the spiritual world. They were incredibly, incredibly intelligent and sophisticated, and the only thing it took to bring their entire intellectual world crashing down was to have a weirdo like Galileo point his telescope up at the moon instead of down at the horizon, and to, find, and to look at the moon and discover the imperfections in the heavenly world that was supposed to be perfect spheres, a determination which was made using very sophisticated, very reasonable argumentation based on the priors of the scholastics and of the ancient philosophers. To take that beautiful theory and to smash it simply by having an instrument that allowed you to notice, hey, the moon's got bumps on it. That's enough to unmake a world. And it did. What you had during the Enlightenment and the Reformation was a protracted and often very bloody battle between scholastics and empiricists. The scholastics were the theologians. Uh, eventually, the scholastics wound up being the theologians and the philosophers, and the empiricists wound up being the engineers and the scientists, with the artists often, especially the great Renaissance artists, sitting directly in the middle and pulling from both sides. Now, I'm going on this long, deep... Uh, well, I mean, it's not really that deep, but th this long sort of rabbit hole to explain how reason will drive you to places that are insane if reason does not submit to experience. 
what does this mean for your uh, education and your creativity? Well, anything you're getting educated in for any reason other than abstract intellectual curiosity is connected to something that you want to do. And if you are a person who likes learning stuff, especially you're a person who likes reading about stuff and playing with ideas, you're going to be very, very vulnerable to always exploring, because there's always more to learn and read, and never doing. I'm, I'm going to suggest that there's a another factor in here. Okay. And that is perfectionism. Perfection, yeah, perfectionism plays a big role in this. Particularly because the curiosity and wanting to learn things can drive it, and also wanting to get it absolutely right can drive you to keep learning instead of doing. Mm-hmm. The, the mechanism is the same, but the reason that that you're falling into that trap is a little bit different. Yeah, and the the neg- the avoiding negative emotionality is a much more powerful motivator than the positive lust for uh, new books to read. But in either case, what's happening when you find yourself spinning your wheels is that you are not closing the loop. You're not creating feedback. You're not doing something in the world that will tell you, is what I'm doing working? You're not experimenting after a failure Uh, in ways that allow you to discover new things. It's just like you can know everything possible about basketball and then get on the court and not be able to sink a basket. Now, once you're on the court for a while and you've learned how to sink a basket and dribble a ball and pass and handle the things, then all that study that you did will kick in and you will make massive leaps of progress that you couldn't make just doing stuff through trial and error, or at least not as quickly. However, if you just went onto the court and you did things through trial and error relentlessly, you would get to the same place or a higher place than someone who's loaded down with theory, because while theory expands your knowledge out and it, it, it sort of, it's like uh, having a snowplow plow the road in front of you in both senses in the one sense it clears your path so all you've got to do is drive the road and in the other sense it piles up banks on either side of the road that you can't drive through whereas if you're doing trial and error is one of the glorious things about being a new writer is you don't know what can't be done and so you do all of the things that can't be done and occasionally you do them right and that eventually becomes part of your authorial voice and part of your style and a unique part of both things. So having your mind filled with theory can give you a lot of confidence, but it will also limit the ways that you can grow. Now, this is ironic coming from me because I'm doing a podcast where I'm talking about the theory of story, the theory of writing, offering advice, offering thoughts. I play and also the theory of mind and, and the, the theory, theory of time uh, uh, time management yep. and we I pl- talk about it a lot here. I play in the world of theory a lot. I'm very very good at it. But one of the things that I learned very very young growing up among academics is the best academics, the ones who were literally who now literally who I knew when they were brand new baby professors who are now literally the world authority on several different subjects versus the ones who were their peers and have now in their old age turned out to be fairly pedestrian and largely irrelevant. 
The difference between these two sets of people is that without exception, the ones who have gone on to become world-class uh, academics are the ones who had other hobbies and who found ways to pour their academic curiosities into other hobbies. Like, for example, an archaeologist I knew, who was also a historian, he had hobbies including playing historical instruments, carving... He carved his bed for uh, his wife, his and his wife's 10th anniversary. He carved it out of ash trees that he found in Greece, and he did it using tools that were only available in ancient Greece, and he did it so that it looked like Odysseus's bed from the Odyssey, except that, you know, it wasn't, it obviously didn't have one corner that was a tree, but he made that one corner look like a tree. Um, he did these things because they connected him to the reality of what he was studying, and what that helped do is it helped ground the way that he did his theorizing. So, they all play into each other, and he's become one of he's become the world expert on uh, Hannibal and on life in Southern Gaul and um, those sorts of things during the Roman and medieval period. And that pattern holds true throughout all of the academics I knew as uh, as a youngster. And it's held true across all of the other people in every profession and field that I have dabbled in, gone near, or invested a lot of time in. The best novelists are the ones who have lives where they spend most of their times doing things other than writing and other than office jobs. The problem with office jobs is they are abstracted. They don't have feedback. They don't allow you to feel the limits of yourself. This is not to say that if you have an office job, you can't be a good writer or no, a novelist. No, it, it just means that you have a particular kind of obstacle in your way. Yeah. When you're finding yourself spinning your wheels like you describe you are, what's happening is your intelligence is being co-opted by your perfectionism and by um, your drive to take the path of least resistance, which is just learning more theory. And that is pulling you away from doing the hard thing, sitting down and writing, and then having someone read your work and tell you what they think. In the end, in every case where you can get stuck spinning your wheels, doing will get you out of it. Now, doing may not be easy. You may have to face down parts of yourself you don't want to look at. Your fears, your terrors, um, blocks that come from, that you built up for reasonable defense purposes, uh, for hurts that you've experienced in your past that are now in your way. Almost every maladaptive uh, habit started life as an adaptive habit, and it's outgrown its usefulness. But that's what I was talking about. These things will all get in the way of your creativity as long as you are not doing. If you're doing, all this theory study can be a vast advantage. It can make you leapfrog several steps over what other people are doing. But if you are not doing, you can and maybe will, and I've seen many people do this, spend decades of your life or spend your entire life waiting for the right moment, studying, getting ready, and never doing. And then you get to the end and you think, well, at least I had potential. And that's the saddest epitaph anybody can have. Thank you very much for the question, Kane. I hope you found it useful. And I'll see you tomorrow.
The Everyday Novelist is written and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty Nakian, and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2023 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2023 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you. Dateline. The future. Humankind stretches out to the stars. Maybe they go on generation ships. Maybe they live on space stations. Maybe terraforming bases dominate the worlds of tomorrow. In these hostile places, only two things seem certain. With people come conflicts. And in manufactured environments, the wrong kind of conflict will damage your air supply. So forget regular guns, needle lasers, ray guns, and anything else that can screw up your habitat. I want stories where the violence and conflict depend on ingeniously adapting ancient weapons to future environments, where this technological shift solves old social problems and creates new ones, and where cultures and religions arise around those weapons and provide them contexts, both accepted and outlaw, within their societies. Give me swashbucklers, knife fighters, booby trappers, baton wielders, pirates, mafiosos, Robin Hoods, cops, priests, robbers, fugitives, and assassins. Give me swords in space. This is a paying market. Submit your story to editor at everydaynovelist.com. Be sure to use the phrase swords in space in the subject line. 8,000 words maximum, 2,000 words minimum. See you on the slush pile.